Hi, everyone. I'm Anita Lustria, and for many years I did live radio. Then I transitioned to the podcast world where I feel I found my home. I love talking about spiritual formation, justice issues, and spiritual practices. Throw in the Enneagram, movies, and current events from time to time, and that's what you get on the podcast. I'm glad you've come along for the ride. Welcome to Faith Conversations. Welcome to Faith Conversations, everyone. I'm glad that you're here, especially because this is the first podcast of the new year, 2023. Oh, I'm kind of out of breath. 2022 left me breathless, but I'm regaining myself here in 2023, and I'm excited that you have been with me, many of you, for many years. This is episode 348. Yep. Uh, eight and a half years here we've been going on the podcast. So glad you've joined me for January of 2023. And you're going to be glad you did. This is a very important topic that we're going to focus on today. Joni Sankin is my guest, and she is professor of homiletics at United Theological Seminary. And if you're wondering where that is, I had to look it up. Dayton, Ohio. Yes. And Beyond that, she has written other books other than the one that we're going to talk about today, which is called All Our Griefs to Bear. But she has also written about um, words that heal. I feel like that goes along with some of what we're going to be talking about today. I'm maybe even thinking there's a little bit of a theme running through her life. We'll find out more about that uh, as we get into our con conversation. But Joni is an ordained pastor in the Mennonite Church USA. And I think this is important for our conversation today. She's completed two levels of training with STAR, and that is Strategies for Trauma Awareness and Resilience uh, through the Center for Justice and Peacebuilding at Eastern Mennonite University. Honestly, I'm slightly jealous, would love to be doing that, but awfully glad other people are doing it and all about that kind of work. So uh, without further ado, welcome to Faith Conversations, Joni Sankin. Thanks for being here today. It's great to be with you. I have to ask you, you know, you've written Words That Heal and what we're going to talk about today, your latest book, All Our Griefs to Bear. And let me let me give the subtitle as well. Responding with Resilience After Collective Trauma. Um, it seems like there's a little bit of a theme here. Tell me a little bit about your life and how this came to be. Well, I had first gotten interested in trauma and how trauma impacts groups and individuals and pastors from the work that I do at United Theological Seminary. So I'm a professor and I work with people who are currently serving churches and people who are feeling called to serve churches. So a lot of clergy and the way that our semesters are arranged, we have a lot of these intensive classes. So our students are dispersed across North America, largely there's some in international locations. And they all like fly into Dayton and they've been preparing, busy, like writing sermons, doing the study. And then they come and they're like ready to preach during this intensive time that we have together. And for a while there, it felt like something horrible on kind of a national scale would happen, like just as they were getting ready to come. So like a mass shooting, like the Pulse nightclub shooting happened. And then like the next day they're, they're flying to Dayton, Ohio, or the uh, Emmanuel um, AME Church, Mother Bethel, 
that shooting happened and then they were on their way to Dayton and they were very much still processing what had occurred, feeling like the things that they had prepared were no longer adequate. They wanted to integrate and they were struggling to find the language and the tools. There was anxiety about somehow making things worse or somehow inflaming like cultural issues that were at work. Like if you talk about gun violence, does it mean that you are talking about gun control? Like navigating this stuff with their congregations. And so I thought, okay, let me do some research on this. <laughs> so I started doing some work on it for a conference paper and I had just finished that and I was thinking, okay, there could be a book in this. I was kind of just starting to explore it when our own family experienced a traumatic loss. So my sister-in-law was in her thirties, four small children, and she died from a brain aneurysm. And it was oh. very sudden and the manner in which she died and like just everything surrounding it was wow. very traumatic for our family. And so I started seeing in myself and my family members, the things that I had read about, uh, about trauma. And so I was like, oh, oh my goodness. Um, started to experience some of the things like the push and the pull that can happen with other relationships and with the church. And I felt a very strong conviction from the Holy Spirit. Like I could not do anything to bring Twyla. That was my sister-in-law back. I couldn't do anything to stop what had unfolded there. But this was something I could do. Like I could use this experience and the tools that I had at hand, like the tools of research and writing and the venue that I had in terms of working with clergy to bring our experience to bear in such a way that it might help other families and other individuals that had had a traumatic experience. And I mean, some of the stuff is just so consistent across cultures even. I mean, that when something bad happens, there is a really strong desire for the people in your life to pull away. Like, I think it's just human instinct that you don't want to get pulled into whatever that dark thing is, or you just can't bear to go there. And so you just are, you're almost repelled, but it's really hard when you are the one that experienced the loss and that the people in your life kind of (laughs) recoil from you suddenly, like that's a really painful experience. And I think that the people who leaned in, Mm. um, it was just such a tremendous gift. And I think for the church to be able to do that, to be able to say like, you're not reduced to this bad thing that happened to you. Like we see you, we want to walk with you. We still love you. Like we're not recoiled by this difficult thing. We're not scared of it. Like, I think that's just such a powerful gift that the church can potentially bring. So, I mean, that's kind of how I got involved with it. So I wrote words that heal. And then when it came out, like it came out in, I think April of 2019, in May of 2019, uh, 15 tornadoes hit Dayton, Ohio. It was, like, it was like the tornadoes had a mind of their own. They hit the areas that were least equipped to come back. They hit economically impoverished areas so that the entire community was recoiling. We had a Klan rally that summer. And then we had, a mass, we had a mass shooting then in August. So I felt like I was like, oh, like I wrote this book. And then all of a sudden there's such a need. And so had started working with pastors. And then of course, turning into 2020, we all know, know what happened. Well, yes, we do. Right. Um, just cascading traumas really in 2020. And I, I thought I was done, but then still not feeling done, wanting to do a little more work with kind of some of the social aspects as a way to process and help uh, amidst our still actually unfolding reverberations of, of the crises and the ongoing trauma related to uh, a number of things that are associated with, with fallout from the pandemic. Um, and various injustices that have been made worse by that experience. 
Well, yes. And, and right. When we think about the pandemic, um, honestly, my mind almost always goes to, um, the, the racial strife that also ensued, um, during that time. And, uh, you know, George Floyd, we, and we can name others as well before and after. Um, and so I think I have personally, as, as a podcaster, I've been looking and waiting for some kind of a resource to come out to be presented that would speak to this in some way. I feel like, um, preachers, professors, you know, I feel like people have been talking about this. Uh, and, and I, but I feel like even on the the local church level, there's, there's been this desire to not go back to life as normal, but to not know how to not go back to life as normal. And congregants, some of those are desiring to only go back to what used to be, because we don't want to talk about it, even though it needs to be um, a topic of conversation. And so how, I, I think it's even interesting the way that your book has broken down. I mean, you talk about collective trauma at the beginning, and we will sit in, in that and talk about that a little bit, of course. But you move into a, a chapter on lament, chapter on storytelling, which I think is really interesting, and on blessing. I totally get the first two talking about collective trauma and lament, and we'll get to storytelling and blessing. But I mean, certainly collective trauma, a wound we share, I mean, uh, COVID is is a huge one and very layered as well uh, for some of the reasons that you just mentioned, because political things come are brought to bear on it as well. And so much happened. Uh, how did you decide and figure out how to break this book down? I mean, I think it's really interesting and hard. Well, I knew that I wanted it to be accessible for just for anyone. Like I didn't want to just write for clergy or for like academics. I wanted this to be something that could be useful for just believers who nice. needed a, a way forward. Yep. Uh, and I wanted to give some information about collective trauma mostly just to comfort people so that they know that uh, what they're experiencing is normal and that it's a, a, a bodily response that is helping you try to process the stress that we've all been under, like not being able to sleep, changes in appetite, changes in the way that we perceive time. Like all of these things are, are part of our body trying to metabolize the stress that we're experiencing and that you're not alone in your experience of that. And if you've been experiencing kind of oddness in terms of your sense of connectedness in our world, that that sense of the bonds um, that hold us together, when we experience collective trauma, we can experience both a, a sense of being pulled together, but also a sense of being broken apart. And there are choices involved in that too. Like sometimes groups are thrown together and a sense of fate. It's a club that no one wants to belong to. You think of veterans or people who have lost their children to addiction or something like that. There's groups with a very high cost of membership. And then there are times when people make a choice through some kind of a relational resonance to, to join with a group of people around a common cause. We talk about solidarity. I mean, there are choices that are made in terms of how we interact. Right. Um, so we can reclaim some of the agency that we've lost. I find that's really healing to say, okay, I don't have a choice about this, but I do have a choice about this. And to just give people information so that they feel equipped and comforted 
and to realize like how early in this process we are. I mean, many of us yeah. don't have any frame of reference for what we're experiencing here. Like, and talking to people, I mean, the last time there was some kind of a global event like this, maybe World War II would have been the last time that there was something that involved the entire world having to deal with something difficult with a large loss of life like this and feeling somewhat out of control and just the daily life impacted in such a, an intense personal and collective way. So I think yeah. to know, all right, we're very early, like this has only been a few years. And so like, there's going to be ways that we process this differently in five years. There's going to be different ways that this is processed by our children. So like to know that there's a long game at, at play here as well. And so for me, at least learning that was very comforting to me. I was like, oh, okay. Like the way it is right now is not the way it's going to be forever. <laughs> and that there are more choices for God to bring a healing, mm -hmm. um, in the midst of this. I mean, we don't talk about healing as a way of erasing what right. has occurred, but instead that language of resilience, really bringing that together. So how can life still have meaning and goodness and purpose? And how can we still experience a sense of resurrection while also knowing that this happened and this is part of who we are too, like mm -hmm. holding all of that together and kind of more of an expansive understanding of, of what it is to, to live now. And I think one of the things too, that I'm paying attention to, I'm seeing, and you probably are too, more people as we are talking about the trauma of uh, COVID, um, some of their own personal trauma that had been buried, that maybe had not been dealt with has started elevating. And so I think that is something that's also coming out of this time period as we get a handle on how to talk about the trauma of COVID that, oh, wait a minute, I got to put the brakes on that while I go and deal with this. I'm yeah, sure you're seeing never, that. Well, it's never too late in God's timeline to address these things. When they come up again, it's another opportunity to attend to that, yes. to address that, to say, okay, what is needed here um, to metabolize whatever this is? Because it's it really is an opportunity, I think. Um, and, and to know, I think it's hopeful to know that we get these opportunities again and again to, to bring love and attention to the areas of our lives that need that, um, whether it's our, ourselves or communities that we're a part of. Yes. I mean, a lot of churches, this has been very difficult for them. And I mean, a lot of issues have surfaced in congregations. Um, well, one of the things I didn't mention at the beginning is that you're married. Um, your husband's name is Steve and your children, um, you have two children and I did say that you're, you're living in Ohio because that's where you're teaching. But, uh, I wanted to know what the ages of your children are and were as we entered COVID. So my, my children are now 10 and six. And so when we were first dealing with the stuff, they were like seven and three. And so, okay. Yeah, it's uh, they were quite little when all of these things were happening. It's especially just such a marker for me to realize my son, I mean, like his entire time in schooling, like preschool, kindergarten, like, I mean, this is just how things are. And for my daughter too, I mean, this is the first year that we've had some concerts and like some stuff in the school and like getting to go in the yeah. school and meet the teacher and like see the classroom. I mean, the school well, what we would call normalcy, right? We would yeah, call yeah, the school, necessarily the school was like Fort Knox. And I mean, I try 
not to linger this stuff, but I was thinking the other day about how my son, like his preschool went on pretty well as normal, but there was weird stuff. Like they had drawn like a big paint marker, like around the perimeter of the entrance. So you had to like send your child, like everyone was masked and like, you couldn't go within like 12 feet of the door. Like, so you're kind of like off you go, like (laughs) way back. Like you can't see the room. You can't touch the teacher. Like, so yeah, I mean, a very odd, at least on the basis of how things were before, a very odd experience. So you, I wanted to know that because, so you have had that school experience (laughs) of having a child in school, children, you know, during that season, which my husband is a pastor as well. So that's, uh, I also say I live in like ideal seminary world, but my husband is a pastor. And so I know what it was like for him to be doing church from our living room while we were like trying to like be quiet or like we were all pressed into varied roles so that there could be multiple people in the service um, as he was broadcasting these things from our house. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the big question, you know, one of the big questions still, um, and, and, you know, having conversations with various pastors, our own included, uh, where we attend my, my husband was a pastor for decades. We're semi-retired now and he's not actively pastoring, but, um, you know, what, what life looks like now in the church, the percentage of people who have come back and a group of people have just kind of evaporated that don't have not chosen to come back, whether that's health related or, huh, we decided we didn't need the church experience yes. anymore. I, and I think churches are deeply struggling. Yes. And what do you, how, you know, what are some of the things that you talk about when you, um, you know, when you're in the context of talking to ministry leaders, pastors, especially who are really struggling with this. I mean, I think first of all, to be intentional and to kind of acknowledge what's unfolding and to acknowledge your own feelings with it. I mean, there's that sense of care for yourself. Um, a lot of pastors are still struggling with burnout. I think, um, from everything has unfolded in the past through several years and many members are probably struggling with burnout as well. So to attend to that in terms of being careful to not be like taking on so many initiatives or maintaining so many like a zillion online programs that you were doing while trying to bring everything back in person. So there's that piece of being realistic about what your energy level is and just validating and acknowledging what they're experiencing, but also some intentionality. I mean, the practices that I suggest in the book, I look at them because they are somewhat related to a process, which is not linear <laughs> processing trauma. And thanks for saying that. Yeah. Cause I, you know, I honestly, we are just linear people and that's how we think. And I think we need someone to tell us that this is not a linear process. No, it's not. I mean, it is like grief. I mean, it's not, it's not linear. You can be one place one day and then feel like you're just right back at the moment of your grief the, the next day. So to know that that's not linear to just accept that. Yeah. But, but to also say, okay, like there are tools that we can have as a congregation. So one of the things my husband's church is doing right now is they are actually doing a podcast around Advent where they have invited, this is, would be related to storytelling. So they've invited church members to talk about like a Bible verse or something related to Christmas or Advent that's meaningful to them as a way of helping us to remember who we are together. Mm. Like, oh, who, who are we? Like, who are the members of the church? Like, what are their lives? Like, what are their memories of church past in this congregation mm. to help kind of shore us up so that we know who we are now? 
because there's such a sense of fragmentation and so much change. And I mean, in his congregation, there weren't deaths necessarily related to COVID, but there were a lot of deaths of older members during the time that the church was not together and folks were not able to um, have traditional funerals. They weren't able to mark these things like the grief they're kind of carrying along. Um, people moved like, I mean, all sorts of transitions unfolded. And so I think to remind us who we are, like there are things that we can do that are intentional about that, um, memorializing what occurred. One of the things I didn't get it in the book, but I keep thinking about it. I feel like every church should have something physically in their space that says we were not here from whatever, like March, 2020 to like, whenever they came back together, yeah. um, like a, a picture, a plaque, a little garden outside with a plaque. Mm quilt, like just something in the church to say this happened so that it's there in the space and people can remember that. And mm -hmm. it can be kind of a little touchstone so that we don't just go on like acting as though nothing has happened. I mean, that is really corrosive. I think to kind of acting just, as if nothing has happened, Yeah, to just pick yeah. back up and to not want to go there. I mean, it doesn't mean that the wound is attended to in any way. It just means that we're not attending to it. Well, and I think I've, have felt semi strongly about churches having some kind of a service of lament. Oh yeah. And, uh, I let's talk about that. Yeah. There's so much in the book. I'm like watching our time as we're talking and realizing there's, there's way too much, you know, that for us to be able to cover it all. And, and that's one of the reasons I really like the fact that there is a book, you know, all our griefs to bear, again, is the name of it, responding with resilience after collective trauma. And I'll have that posted in the show notes for people. But, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about collective trauma. It's a lot more there. And I also love it before we move on to lament. I, I, I love the fact, I really appreciate it that you have, um, just a great, uh, chart or table, whatever it's called, <laughs> um, on pages 28 and 29, where you talk about, how collective trauma unfolds over time, stages of collective trauma, collective trauma, because I think we're not even aware. I think we need to read that and go, oh, this is what that means. Oh, that's what I was feeling. Oh, I see that now. And, uh, you know, I, I just thought that was so helpful. That's certainly just one of the things. And then factors that influence the ability to trust. I mean, you're, there's some there's a lot of really helpful information in here, but I found that helpful right at the offset of the book. Um, I don't know if you want to say any more about that before we move on. It can be helpful to think about other kind of collective traumas we've yes. experienced, like September 11. Like that was yes. something I was thinking of a lot that now we're like 20 years out from that event, more than 20 years now. And like, what is our relationship with that event now? And to think about other kind of past events that have unfolded, what are our relationships with that? Like a lot of studies around um, secondary trauma and collective trauma, generational trauma come out of Holocaust studies. Yes. So we have separations removed yes. from, from that experience as well. And so kind of to, to pull on those past experiences and say, okay, how does this give us wisdom? I mean, even remembering like the little nursery rhyme ring around the rosy like that comes from like the bubonic plague like i mean oh, traumatic yeah. experiences find a way of like they impact culture in lasting ways yes so to know that what we've experienced we're going to be continuing to deal with and process for 
a long time. A long time. Well, and I and I thought about it in the context of just a family, you know, let alone global collective trauma, a, a family that maybe has experienced um, the death to, of a loved one to suicide, um, you know, and and just the state, the different um, how how the trauma unfolds over time in a family because of some traumatic event. I just thought it was helpful on many, many levels, let alone what we are currently experiencing in our country and, and in, our, in our world as well. So, uh, yeah, so, so good. Well, so I just said, I wish churches would have some kind of a service of lament. You have a whole chapter uh, about lament. Talk about, you shook your head and yes, and said yes, indeed. Why is that important? And talk a little bit more about lament in general. So lament is a prayer to God, naming kind of the reality of how things are. It's a very raw, very honest prayer. It can be a kind of a form of protest saying, God, this is not what you promised. This is not what life looks like according to your good intentions for creation. And, and it's a way of, of bypassing the powers that be and the systems that are here and now and going straight to God with your concern. Um, so it's often uh, a form of prayer that would be used. Howard Thurman has this wonderful phrase, people whose backs are up against the wall. So you have no other option. Like lament can be that, that form of empowerment and protest. So sometimes lament is the only thing you can do um, when you're in such terrible pain is to just lament that. So all of that said, there's also the sense that lament is between you and God, but it can also um, involve a group of bystanders. Like if you witness someone yeah. lamenting, you cannot remain unmoved by that. Mm. So you're, you're drawn into that. You are called to also respond and act in some way. So it's a complex social act. It's a prayer. It's a protest. I mean, it's, it's so complex and it does so many good things for, for people and for groups. Like there are so many benefits of engaging with lament, not just on the rare hopefully rare occasions when something horrible has happened, but also like on a regular basis to make this part of your spiritual toolkit, a way that you can engage with God and engage with our world. But the challenge is, and I deal with this with each of these three practices that our culture has kind of a way of being that works against this, um, this tool that we could be using to help nurture our, our faith and our, um, and our life in, in this world. So I think our, our culture does not like to hear anything that's negative. We want to um, focus on self-improvement. We want to say things are always getting better. It requires so much vulnerability to say, no, actually I'm broken <laughs> because people want to say, oh no, I'm, I'm just a, a few steps away from my best life. Like people just have a really hard time owning that. Well, I like, I'm, I appreciate that toxic positivity has been yes. aimed because isn't that true? Absolutely. And it's around wanting people to buy things. I mean, the self-help industry wants to sell you something that'll make your life better. Right. Right. So they don't want you to just be like, no, it's terrible. God help me. Like they don't want that. They want to be like, oh, if only I can buy this supplement. If only I buy this granola bar, if only I take this class, if only I, whatever it is. Or just buy stuff to make yourself feel better. Forget oh, yeah. even the self-help. I mean, it, it, oh yeah, of right? course, all yeah. across the board it. there. Yeah. yeah, this has been a bad week. I deserve some chocolate. That yeah. kind of thing. just true. Also, <laughs> <laughs> can be anyway. Yeah. Um. So, 
a couple of things. One, I really appreciate the fact that um, you expand uh, the definition. You don't expand the definition. You tell the real definition of lament. I think we often um, are aware of kind of a one note definition of lament. So that's what I, one of the things that I notice in the book that I really appreciate. And why do you think more churches haven't really done some kind of a service of lament coming out of COVID? And it's, and also it's kind of weird because in one way, COVID is not over and done. And maybe that's it because it's like this ongoing thing, but on another in another sense, uh, the two really rough, heavy-duty years of COVID are behind us. There is a sense of easing. So. May it be so. I know, I know. And also, I recognize that it looks different. If you, So I'm talking with you. You're in Ohio. I'm talking with you from Sarasota, Florida. It looked different where I live because I could get outside all winter long and walk and be, you know, during those, during COVID times or, um, where if you're up North in the middle of snowstorms and all of that, I mean, it's a very different kind of scenario. Yeah. Or if you were in New York city there in yes. like March, 2020 with the sirens and the times square, just off basically. Done. I mean, yes. I imagine how painful that that was. Yeah. But why do you think more churches, or at least seems to me, uh, I've certainly not seen lots of advertisement for lament services. <laughs> you know, it doesn't seem like that's been happening. I mean, it's probably a variety of reasons. I think some people just don't want something sad. They just want to go to church and forget about that. They want to get their praise on. Like they, mm-hmm. they love the, I mean, our worship seems to focus, a lot of our worship focuses on praise and doesn't acknowledge um, kind of the the other side, the lament that is really needed in order for us to, to fully to, praise and celebrate. So there's there's that. I think our theology that um, sometimes there's a sense of focusing kind of the triumph of God and on the resurrection so much that we don't attend to the cross and the wounds that are present on the body of the resurrected Christ, that we want to just bypass all of that somehow, which is very painful for people who can't. We have not borne the brunt of this equally. Uh, some people have suffered extreme loss and others because of privilege or other varied things have, have not uh, suffered this loss to the same extent, even though all of us have had uh, an experience of collective trauma, I would say. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just immensely unkind and just um, to disregard the experiences that that some have had and to not acknowledge that. But it, it I mean, it requires a cost. It requires a sense of saying, yes, like I, I, I cast my lot with you. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we're, we're so tapped out at this point. I, I think many people just don't have the energy to, to go there, to extend themselves and empathy toward another human being that that's in pain. So, I mean, that there's so many reasons uh, to not, to not have a lament service at a church, but I mean, there are so many benefits of doing it. And if we don't do it there, then I, I'm not sure where it will happen because yes, agree. Culturally, it has not happened. And I mean, some agree. of the most profound stuff that I read when I was kind of rereading about September 11 and the ways that we dealt and didn't deal well with that traumatic experience, we never had any time of mourning there either. There was no national day of mourning. If we had done that, um, maybe we wouldn't have rushed to pursue evildoers and mm, like just gotten so, so yeah. 
enacting the pain that we experienced out upon others in the world and just perpetuating violent trauma responses. I mean, if only. That's so interesting to think about. I'm so glad you named that. That's fascinating. One of the other things that I don't know if this has been said, but you also have um, exercises or, well, what's the word? Yeah, I guess for lack of better way to call them. Uh, ideas. Yeah. yeah. Suggestions of how, what we can do. And I would love for you to give um, a couple of those suggestions under lament um, that people can, can practice or do. I think to, to have groups experiment with writing their own laments, like there are questions that are prompts um, that follow basically the form of the lament Psalm. Like the Psalms are a wonderful resource for people who want a prayer of lament. If you don't want to write your own prayer, you can pray a Psalm of lament, like half the Psalter are laments, even though we don't use them and worship in the same way. So to allow the words of the Psalm to be your own prayer of lament. Um, And then maybe to, to try experiment with writing a prayer of lament to say, okay, what, where, where is the locus of pain in your life? Mm. Like who is God toward you in the midst of that pain? Um, how do you envision God responding to that pain and kind of allow those things to guide your writing of the prayer? Um, a prayer could be written in a small group and then used in worship could be used in motion. Like there's a number of different ways that you could, um, process that. I mean, especially with children, like that's one of the things I talk about too. I mean, kids experienced a lot of losses as well in the last few years. And I think, um, their losses have been minimized. And we're seeing a mental health crisis among kids right now and like a rise of eating disorders and all sorts of like painful responses in part, at least I think to the traumatic stress that so many kids have experienced. So to validate their experiences and to help them also name what their losses are and to bring those into the care of God. And I mean, these things can be fairly simple. I mean, light a candle and have it named and then say, God help us. I mean, yes, absolutely. Uh, it's It's so interesting. It takes me back. My, my son is 30 years old now, but when he was, I think in second or third grade, he at that time was at a Christian school and, and his teacher had each child write a Psalm of a lament based on a Psalm. And his dad and I had gone through a divorce and that is what his little seven, eight year old mind he that is what he wrote about and i mean it was just kind of heart-wrenching you know to read that but but i think now today hearing you talk about this what that maybe did for him in that moment that i probably didn't even realize yeah Um, i mean everybody everybody experienced loss uh and it was regardless if you were alive during that time you experienced some kind of loss uh, talk about storytelling. What do you mean when we come to storytelling? What What is important about this? And why are, why is this in a book that's talking about all of our griefs to bear? Um, so when I talk about storytelling, I want to make it really clear that unless you were a trained therapist, you are not supposed to guide people in telling the story of their trauma. That can be really harmful for that person. But um, that said, I think storytelling can be really beneficial when the time is right and when they feel ready and they want to um, for communities to reclaim who they are, to remember the things that are most important to them, um, to resonate with God's call and God's story in their midst. And I think to, to also process and to like, to name kind of the realities of, of the journey that we've been on together. 
So there's a lot of, of benefits to storytelling. We need to make sure that it's honest storytelling and not kind of Cinderella storytelling, ah, which our culture really loves and tries to kind of hammer everything into that mold where it's yes. like, well, it was, it was good. Then there was a problem. And then it was even better than it was before. I call it's, it Hallmark storytelling. Yes. It's very rare that there is a very serious problem and that somehow then things are better than they were before. Like that's just, that's just very rare. So yeah. I'm, I, to make sure that you're not hammering things into that story and that also you're not somehow worshiping that story rather than worshiping kind of the reality, yeah. even of the gospel story, which is that yes, Jesus experienced the worst that can happen to a person. He was executed on a Roman cross. He was raised, but still raised with those wounds from that experience. And so the resurrected Christ still carries that. And the event of the cross, I think, exists eternally in the life of God so that God is able to kind of understand all of those things and that the cross is not exercising dominion over God or over Jesus. It's not the primary force, mm -hmm. but it's still present. Um, it's still there. That's not erased. Yes. Uh, so part of what informs who God is toward us. So uh, lots of ways that you can do that kind of storytelling in a, in a family or in a congregation or just your own self. Like you can find a, a biblical story that you resonate yeah. with, memorize that, like help to make that your own. Mm. You can do that yourself or with a, a group. Um, one of the suggestions I have in that chapter is at either a retreat or during worship at children's time to have objects from like varied times in the church's history, like maybe an old hymnal or like a communion set or a costume from VBS and say, okay, what are these? And when did we use these things to kind of remind us mm. of who we are? And I mean, nice. this is a way that you can also involve folks who are not back worshiping in the space. You can have a, a video of someone telling a story of an experience in the church, like the story of like when maybe their child was baptized or when they got married or when there was a new pastor, like something in the life of the church that can be shared by video with the congregation to remind us of who we are and whose we are and what our purpose is moving forward. Yeah. Um, storytelling is so powerful for that. And then of course, like just the use of story, I teach preaching and story is just like such a valuable ingredient. <laughs> for preaching. Yeah. And when you tell stories of hope and stories of God's action in our world, it helps people, it kindles the imagination of faith, and it helps us to see where God is active in our lives as yes. well. That that builds resilience. When you're somebody who has worked that hope muscle, and like if you can't work your own muscle, someone can work it for you to help mm -hmm. you work it, then you actually experience more hope. Yeah. So, I mean, getting used to telling those kinds of stories. Um, and some of my classes, I've had a, a forum, like a just an online forum where people called the hope forum, where they're supposed to just post story, a song, a poem, a picture, like nice. whatever it is that's giving you hope so that we have this steady stream that we can pull from when we need a little bit. Nice. As we're kind of doing our daily work. <laughs> nice. I love that. Hey, I don't want us to run out of time before we talk a little bit about blessing. What, what's the importance of blessing and why, why is that in, included in a book like this? So blessing is sort of the odd one of that trio. I mean, lament and storytelling, like those are, yeah. are marked points on, and a lot of research about trauma metabolism, but blessing is a little bit different. And what I love about blessing is it is naming as already realized the, the promises that, that God has made toward us. It's highly contextual. It's an outpouring of God's 
very being upon creation, both kind of in intentional ways and also in just the sort of overflowing abundant ways, but also nestled within our experience of blessing is also the fact that sometimes it is hidden within the mystery of the cross as well. And so we can't say, oh, blessing always means this or blessing always means that because in scripture, I mean, we're in Advent right now, recording this to be <laughs> brought forth in January, but Mary is repeatedly called blessed and she like has a, not an easy life. Her child yeah. is killed. And so yeah. like this is what it means to be blessed. Jesus is blessed. I mean, when figures in scripture are called blessed, it often means that they have a difficult way ahead of them. And that's very different than our hashtag blessed yes. called where blessing looks like having a big house and the perfect car and the 2.5 kids and whatever else is so associated with being blessed to you. So I, I thought it was important to include that and also to have this balance, this sense of kind of juggling um, to balance lament and storytelling, to also have the sense of blessing and the sense of release uh, of who God is just in love, abundant love toward creation. Give just a couple uh, uh, suggestions of how to practice that uh, blessing part. I think blessing can be something that we we do. I know a lot of people talk about wanting to be a blessing in the world or wanting to kind of share material resources. I think that can be a way of blessing. Um, often after a disaster, there is that desire to reach out in some way and um, to kind of be careful how we do it. Like you don't want to overload uh, people with a bunch of socks when they have no need for socks, for example, but, but to give money or to give um, time or to give prayer towards something that has happened. I think that's a very physical way of, of blessing. I think we experience blessing when we practice sacrament. I think um, receiving the, the body and blood of Jesus in worship is a way of, of experiencing blessing. And that's, it's very powerful. Um, and also I think writing your own blessing, may God like for various occasions in your own life, the lives of your friends and the life of, of a church or a community, um, we don't have blessings as mile markers in our culture for a lot of things. Other cultures do this better, but but we don't, but you can do that. Like when a yeah. friend retires, write a blessing yes, for that, for that, that. event. And it, it's powerful to kind of envision that. I mean, when I was working on this book, I had finished it and it felt kind of raw still. And the editor had said, well, why don't you end it with a blessing for your readers? And I was like, oh, okay. Like imagine, love that. imagine them like, and try to come up with a, some kind of a way of, of blessing. So, um, um, I lead a Alexio Divina group online every Wednesday. And one of our pastors is always a part of it. And she ends every Lexio with a blessing and incorporates a couple of phrases that have come out in that Lexio into her blessing every week. And it's, I find it really powerful. I love that idea so much. You should really read good. Jan Richardson. If you oh, want to like, I have, yes, I have immerse yourself in blessings. Jan yes. Richardson is great. Um, Absolutely. She is. So that's a good suggestion. I, uh, this is uh, uh, such a, been such a good and helpful conversation. Um, I have appreciated it so much. Uh, again, the name of the book, All Our Griefs to Bear, Responding with Resilience After Collective Trauma. There's so much more in the book than what we could touch on today. Joni Sankin, thank you so much for your good work with this and for your time here on the podcast today. Thank you. You're welcome. It was just great to talk with you. And to everyone else, I say keep the conversation going. <laughs>